Hello, my finest friends. Welcome to another Rahalastava Book Club. Hope you're enjoying these. I surely am, and that's all that matters. But I've had some nice messages. Do spread the word to your book-loving friends. Um, and uh, I'll let you know what's coming up. Next week should be uh, Francesca Stavrakapulu talking about her book, God and Anatomy, which uh, we had to uh, bump that interview as a Francesca had COVID, but she's all better now. So hopefully that will be next week's show. Uh, this week is Greg Jenner with his book, Ask a Historian, a really fabulously entertaining and also serious but illuminating book answering lots of different questions posed to Greg about history. We'll talk about that in a second. You're going to love it. And Rahalast Bukhar is on. We are doing two more shows at the Les Square Theatre on the 18th of April with Dara O'Brien and another person that I don't know at the time of recording this but if you go to my website I hopefully will have a guest booked by the time you listen to this uh, and the 25th of April with Alan Davies and Ardlo Hanlon from off of Father Ted. Uh, come on you fool and my hero. Come on you fools. There's still some tickets left. I can't believe it but uh, it's selling pretty well so be quick to buy tickets for both of those. Um, I'm giving you fantastic lineups. What do you want from me? Remember, you can watch them uh, from anywhere in the world by live stream gfsboxoffice.com. Just £10 to watch each week's shows. So, and you can catch up. You don't have to watch them live. Anyway, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy Rahalastaba B. Rahalastaba with Greg Jenner. Hello, my finest friends. Welcome to another Rahalastapa Book Club. Uh, this week I am talking to the historian and broadcaster Greg Jenner about his book, Ask a Historian. My first 50 surprising answers to things you always wanted to know from the host of the BBC podcast, You're Dead to Me. Um, my first question about this book is how long did it, decide, make, did it take for you to decide to make it ask a historian and not ask an historian? <laughs> oh, you've joined the culture debates that is uh, <laughs> raging on Twitter. Whenever I post a sort of photo of this, people are like, I think you'll find it's ask an historian. It's like, oh, yeah. It was a hundred years ago when people were old fashioned. Um, yes, we did talk about it a bit. I did actually, I, I did do a little survey to see if people minded the truth. I mean, these days people right. mostly just say a historian. They don't really get stuck up on it. But if you if you put it on a front cover, there are people out there who are outraged. But we don't say mm -hmm. an hotel. I so, might do. Um, you could I don't, if, yeah. if people you are bothered do. about okay. it. You could just write the N in yourself. Just with a You're white. You're welcome tip, to tip, tip X it in. So it's in white. At, so people yeah. can add the N rather than Anne, and then people have to cross out the end. If people want to send me 100 quid, I will uh, print okay. out a bespoke cover for you yeah. and, and pop it in the mail, and you can have an Ask Great. an we'll, Historian we'll, we'll, if we'll you wish. You so tell us about uh, the, what the book is and how you came to write it. What's going on? Yeah, it's a sort of uh, it's a sort of sex memoir. No, it's not. It's um, uh, it's a pretty straightforward concept, to be honest. I'm a public historian. That's how I describe my job, and that means that I get a lot of people asking me questions, and um, which is nice. And over the years, I've been asked some really good questions, some pretty tricky ones that flummox me, and some ones that I can answer quite easily. And um, it um, struck me and my my book editor that this was a good idea for a book, actually, and we were going to basically tore my previous book which is called dead famous um about the history of celebrity um we were going to tour that and i was going to 
give 10 minutes at the end of every show to just let people ask me anything at all. And I'd try and answer it on stage. Um, but obviously I'd jot it down, go home and try and answer it properly and put it in the book. And then the pandemic <laughs> ruined everything, um, as pandemics tend to do. And so um, we instead got all our questions off the Tinterweb. Um, we just sort of basically put out a, a form saying everyone can send in two questions each, ask me anything at all. Try not to make it about Hitler. <laughs> there isn't. Is, um, there, is there anything about? There isn't anything Hitler. about Hitler. Is there? There is. Wow. There is no Hitler okay. in there. Actually, actually, that's not true. There is a oh, bit in there about Atlantis yes. and how the Nazis, uh, how the Nazis that's sort true. of used that in some of their um their right wing propaganda. So yes, there's a little bit of Hitler. There's a a, super, <laughs> a drizzle of Hitler. Um, but um, but it's um, it essentially, I sort of wanted it to be a kind of global history. You know, I more and more in my my projects and so on i'm always trying to do more global history because we have a real european or western bias in our curriculums here and in the stuff we talk about and read and so on so i asked people like ask me anything at all but please don't feel constrained mm -hmm. by just you know the usuals and i got some great questions really really interesting we got about wow. 650 questions and we whittled them down to about 100 or so and then it was a question of like okay and then which which of these sort of 100 become good interesting funny answers where you can you know you can spend uh, a few pages explaining and unpacking it and maybe going off a bit of a side tangent and exploring something over here so yeah then it was a question of, of whittling it down and then researching it all and then were you tempted uh, to so, choose questions yeah. that you already had a lot of knowledge of <laughs> or did <laughs> of oh, course of course <laughs> yeah because um you know the yeah. uh, yes a laziness obviously it's a pandemic i'm very tired i had a six-month-old baby i was also i was writing two books simultaneously because i was also writing my children's book which um, will come out at the end of this year um so yes absolutely if someone asks me a thing i'm like i know that thing it's going in the book but also sometimes that's nice because your passion and your enthusiasm yes. can come through i hope um, you can but sort of see also, I mean, it strikes about. me as a, as a, you know, it, it's you know, in a sense, you think, oh, you know, that's quite an easy book to write because it's just fifty questions and they're short, they're short little bits about each, sort of three thousand mm. words about each, maybe. But actually, that's sort of you still have to do all the research for everyone, so it's it's more work in a way yeah. than, than just doing yeah. a book about one subject. I would have thought. It depends. I mean, my previous so Dead Famous is the book I'm probably proudest right. of. That was four years of of full time work, and that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And um, and that came out four <laughs> days before the pandemic. So that was sort of that was not well timed. Um, so this book is quite a different vibe, and I right. wrote this one in about eight and a half months, probably nine months. Um, and um, so yeah, in some ways, it's easier to write a book about a thing. Uh, that it is to research 50 different subjects. But actually, I've, I really found the, the 50 different subjects quite nice for sort of the old mental health and the kind of, um, you know, allotting a bit of time each yeah. week to one thing. And just sort of, you know, this week I'm doing the history of <laughs> meringues, which is one of the questions. Someone asked me about meringues, and I, I really enjoyed that one. So it's like, okay, meringues, the history of. Um, and that just meant that actually across those sort of nine months, I could do about one and a half a week. Um, while juggling my Your Dead to Me podcast, I was making a children's podcast as well called Homeschool History. I was writing this children's book at the same time. I had a six-month-old baby. Yeah. You know, it was all happening. And so actually having a kind of book that I could compartmentalize, I guess, into my schedule was pretty handy. So um, it wasn't okay, actually good. as taxing well, as it looks. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I think it's, well, it's, a very, I mean, it's a very um, enjoyable book anyway. And I really liked that that as a reader i mean it's i wouldn't call it a toilet book greg but if it is it's a very classy if you were going to the toilet at buckingham palace 
<laughs> you then take this book and yes. read read this on the toilet. But it's nice to have Absolutely. you know, it's nice as a reader, it's nice to just go, <laughs> I can dip into the I think like I actually read the first uh, quarter of it I read when I had COVID and I yeah. was just in, in bed and thought, uh, oh, no, I thought oh I've been meaning to read Greg's book for a while and you, you, know, you could pick and choose you can jump around if you want to you don't it doesn't matter if you jump to question 30 yeah. um, but uh, no that's what I really liked about it it's sort of interesting to talk about kids there because obviously my, my daughter's now seven so she's just got the point where she's literally mm. asking me impossible questions all the time I mean they usually she wants to know <laughs> she you know it's usually who invented something and she wants to know the person. She doesn't yep. want to know. When she, goes, she said to me, who invented carpets? And I looked up and I said, they're about 5,000 years old. They started. And she goes, no, but who who, who invented it? So I tell her it's Ian Carpet. And, and she's she's sort of got she's got, she's got the joke, joke of that now. But um, will you take, because it's not for kids, this book, because there's there's some there's some quite rude no, bits in really. it. No, not really. Or minor rude bits in it. So would you? Yeah. You know, I wondered about that. Whether you, whether did you consider writing a kids' version of this, or did, was it always going to be for for adult? And I, I would say teenagers and up is not not filthy rude. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely fine for like fourteen year olds. Yes, there's there's some penis chat and some some sex chat, um, and and there's a couple of you know a couple of the answers. Yeah. It's mostly meant to be quite funny and light hearted. You know, I'm not as funny as as you. Obviously, I'm not a comedian, but I'm sort of funny comma for a historian <laughs> comma, which is sort of the this is the horrible way that uh, comedians describe me. Um, it's yeah, it's it's not really kid appropriate, and that is a slight issue with my career in that I sort of bounce between children's and adult broadcasting, and t- you know, horrible histories is something I have made for fourteen years, and then I did this homeschool history children's podcast, and then you're dead to me is sort of listened to by children. They shouldn't really, but they do. Um, so this book is very much not for children. My other children's book will be out in November, and that is for children. And it does a sort of similar thing, but um, that'll be about the history of daily life through 50 objects that a child uses every day. It's called You Are History. So, um, you know, if, if listeners are thinking about, you know, they want to buy a book for their kids, yeah. that might that might work. But this is, yeah, this is more about reaching the audience that I tend to cater to most, which is people in their 30s to 50s, I tend to find, who kind of hated history at school or just felt like it wasn't for them and they just felt left behind and then they've hit middle age or you know approaching middle age and they've suddenly gone hang on a minute the world's really complicated why and and those are the people who seem to gravitate towards quite a lot what i do i guess because they're often parents of young kids who watch horrible histories and then they (laughs) find me online and say my child wants to know this um so yeah it's not it's not kid appropriate but actually I'd sort of hope that potentially in five years' time, those kids yeah. might grow up and pick up the book, having uh, read my children's book, if that makes sense. They might sort of move through my other... I hope so. Well, it feels to me there's a lot of scope, for, um, you know, because obviously 50 <laughs> questions, and, and, and the audio book, you have, you, yeah, you throw around some more questions with some celebrity guests, but it's, you know, it's... There's, you know, there's more than 50 questions that people, as you, as you've said, there's, you've got 600 questions. So you could, you could do a kid's version. You could do other versions. I, I think it is, it's a really, Cause, it's a really nice yeah. way to, you know, exactly that, to get a little taste of lots of different things, but also they're, they're really good questions. I was going to say, and you did mention that I was going to talk about whether there's a sort of snobbishness within the history community that you're writing, entertaining and amusing, you know, history, which is to <laughs> me is the best way of, teaching people you know the problem with history history is you know been so dry and and history books have been sort of so serious and Mm. academic and obviously through horrible histories and everything you've done you've 
you've made this uh, career out of, of finding the funny in history. But but obviously, the humanity is a big part of humanity is ridiculous things that people have done and funny things that people have done. Do you, do you yeah, find any snobbishness amongst the history community towards you being entertaining and, and on TV and radio and podcasts as a result of you? Um, it's really interesting because actually historians are incredibly supportive and they're really lovely and they've been so welcoming and, you know, you know, you and I have done your dead to me together. You came on and we talked about Stonehenge and had a lovely time. And, um, it, it's not at all the historians who are the issue. Oddly, the right. sniffiness comes from journalists yeah. and book reviewers. So I tend to, you know, uh, um, I didn't get many reviews for Ask a Historian um, in newspapers. So, you know, I, I can't particularly judge on the on the feedback that way. But Dead Famous got quite a lot of reviews because it was this sort of, it was me trying to be quite a serious historian in some ways. I'd spent four years on it and it was a big, big subject, celebrity, a history of, you know, I was sort of, I was sort of pushing myself in that sense. I was doing something a bit more bold than usual. And it got a lot of reviews in papers and the Guardian loved it and the Irish Times loved it and the Observer loved it. And it was like, oh, that's great. Thanks very much. And then the sort of right wing papers were they were like, well, I don't know why he has to joke so much. And it's like, no, that's the point of the book. That's the whole that's, that's my entire thing. And I don't mind if you don't find me funny. Of course, most people don't find me funny. My wife is being one of them. Um, but I um, I use humor on purpose. And it's not that I'm dumbing down that comedy for yeah. me is a technique. It's an oratorical technique. It's a rhetorical technique. It's a, it's a way of communicating information to an audience who are reticent, who are, might be nervous or scared, who maybe didn't enjoy history at school, who have grown up with this terrifying, vast bulk of knowledge that they know they don't sort of understand and they haven't got access to it. And it is intimidating and it's dry. And as you say, it's inapproachable. And I... I find that really upsetting that <laughs> this amazing resource of knowledge and these extraordinary stories of how how complex humanity can be, how funny we can be, how surprising, how awful we can be to each other, and the ways in which technologies and ideas can change and you know progress is no doesn't happen in a linear forward motion, but you can mm -hmm. have cyclical patterns that's incredibly interesting, and I'm sure everyone out there could be interested in absolutely everything if you can just give them the way in and so my career is all about trying to give that way in and maybe it doesn't work for everyone and that's absolutely fine but when people say oh god he's writing a history book with jokes in it oh what's the point it's like the point is that this is probably the first history book that half of my readers have ever read and that's on purpose that's the idea is to get people who've never read a history book and the hope is that if i succeed they don't buy my next book i mean obviously that's nice if they do please do buy my books but for me success is if they yeah. buy someone else's history book that's when i know i've converted them to actually enjoying history as a subject and that's my job is to get them to like history or at least find it interesting or at least be curious enough to go all right i will give it one more try i will you know so yeah humor for me is not antithetical to the seriousness of which uh, you know, I apply to history. I I take history incredibly seriously, which is why and I think I also even the serious stuff and even the terrible stuff. It's it sort of attitudes to what's right and wrong change so much that even you know, looking back two hundred years, three hundred years, a hundred years, fifty years, uh, attitudes there. It sort of is comical to, to even even mm. when something is the most horrible thing possible that that was accepted. But you know yeah. that. I mean, I don't want to. This is the wrong option to choose, so maybe I shouldn't choose it. But you know, the idea of 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 any of those things, of slavery, of racism, of homophobia, 
as terrible mm. as those all are, it's sort of it's sort of so mind blowing that there's a that, that that people could have like the Bible could be full of slavery and and that's that was accepted as being good. That's almost that's almost a comic yeah, I mean, thing, even in the serious stuff. Yeah, and I yeah. have to be obviously I have to be very sensitive and careful in the kind of things I laugh about. And I, if you sort of read my work sort of fairly carefully, you'll see that actually sometimes yeah. I come out of sort of humor mode for sort of areas where I'm talking about slavery or racism or sexual assault because these things do come up, and you have to just change tone for that because it's so important. And I also always send all my book manuscripts to other historians, other scholars, to make sure that it's a accurate yeah, yeah. and b the tone is right. You know that that I'm not saying anything offensive because I don't want to upset anyone. And I don't want to say anything offensive. It's not my style. And also, I want people to read the books and feel mm -hmm. safe and welcome reading them. Um, but yeah, like hay fever has an extraordinarily yeah. bizarre history. It used to be this incredibly racist understanding that only posh white men would get it, and that was. <laughs> Like, which is sort of mad. It's like a strange notion that you to have hay fever was a was a good thing because it was indicative yeah. that you had a superior brain, and it was believed in the nineteenth century if you had hay fever, you probably therefore were you know a more sort of high functioning being, and uh, it was believed therefore that black people and Jewish people and uh, poor people and women yeah. probably couldn't get it. And certainly British people got yeah. it more than Americans. And then Americans started saying, <laughs> well, I think you'll find we get it more than British people. And it's this sort of baffling arms race where um, a pretty debilitating and not very enjoyable <laughs> illness where, you know, you can't see out your eyes and you can't breathe because of the snuffling is reinterpreted as proof of the kind of superiority. Yes. Which, again, I think race. these things, and you know, they, and you're very yeah. good at finding parallels anyway. But they do have parallels in our modern world, and hopefully by by satirizing that sure. or even just pointing that out, um, you know, you can uh, people will be thinking about the similar stuff in our in our world. I think oh. you're still there, aren't you? You disappeared off screen. That, that's I am still here. Yeah, sorry, my, my <laughs> okay, webcam fell out. <laughs> and well, again, this book is good because it, it it is. There's lots and lots of funny stuff in which we'll we'll get on to, and there's stuff about horse poo and stat and genitals and. Uh, you know, pe penises on horses on the Bayo Tapestry, which we may talk about in a sec. But you do also cover, you know, something like Windrush, which is an amazing thing to have just, again, I think people's knowledge of that subject is so small. And I, you know, even for myself, I think, well, I know what it's mm. about, but to hear all of that properly explained is very important. You know, something like there's a lot about, there's a great uh, question about disability, which you go into a lot of detail about. Uh, there's a great question about periods and how people, uh, how people dealt with, periods in the in the past as well which you know is has a lot of sort of serious intent to it as well so it's, it's far from being just a, a comedy book um and yeah and 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 as you say the windrush one you know that's that's about a generation of people who you know between 1948 and sort of mid 1970s um came over in the hundreds of thousands and faced racism violence abuse uh, you know, they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't get homes, they were attacked in the streets, their businesses were firebombed, uh, the police didn't always, you know, trust them, believe them, help them, support them, you know, and they had felt welcomed in initially, they felt like they belonged, and then they felt rejected and betrayed, and now even a few years, you know, even in the past five, six, seven years, the Home Office had deported some of these people even though they were here legally even though they were citizens of the united kingdom so yeah that's a that's an answer yeah. that is not funny and is not um jolly and hilarious because um we do need to know these stories and you know i'm obviously a 
a white guy so you know again having to be very careful making sure that i'm representing a community and and, and speaking to them and, and asking for advice and so on from other historians but yeah it the book i hope sort of bounces between some of the sort of fun jolly hilarious hooray and then some some stuff that matters and um and the history of menstruation yeah. just really yeah. interesting really really interesting and complicated and linked with medicine but also with religion and science but also questions of gender and and these are all things that are happening in the news at the moment, of course, and in, in public discourse. Um, so, yeah, it's it's always interesting being a historian because you quite often see the echoes of the past in the present day. But obviously yeah. the present day is different. Um, but, but yeah, I hope that there's a balance of uh, of hot button stuff and also just some sort yeah, of weird well, like meringues. Is, you know, <laughs> no, no one gets hot uh, under the colour of meringues. The questions are great. It's a great way of getting a book together to ask people because... You know, there are the. I mean, I'm guessing some of the questions come from children. I don't know, but they are. They do remind me of the questions that my daughter asked. <laughs> but when was the first Monday? Is like such a brilliant question, <laughs> and such oh, and such an impossible so hard question to answer. to answer. But that you give a really good answer <laughs> to. But it's just great to be thrown to have that thrown in because there must have been a first Monday. There must have been a day where someone said. We're calling this Monday, and here it is. <laughs> yeah, we're starting today. Yeah, is it going to the big launch? It, if this yeah, works, exactly, we'll yeah. see what we're going to do tomorrow. We <laughs> <laughs> we piloted Mondays. We're now looking to expand into Tuesdays. Um, yeah, I mean that question is a brilliant. I mean, um, there's a TV show called Russian Doll on Netflix, which is yeah. a really funny, great show that I love, um, where one of the characters says, Thursday, what a concept, uh, which I love as a joke, because actually Mondays have to be invented. They don't exist. Mondays are a human um, invention. Um, I think I joke in the book, Mondays are a human invention, much like Smurfs, biscuits and racism. Um, so they uh, Mondays have four separate beginning points, depending on what you're measuring. And that was a of a head scratcher but i can give you a very quick i can give you a very quick answer yeah, okay. i'll try and do the fastest version of it okay so long story short you can measure four different things you can measure how old is the idea of a seven day week how old is the idea of um a monday named after a planet or named after the moon how old is monday um as a first day of the week and also you know at what point do mondays sort of mean what we think them to mean now with like the whole kind of like oh, <laughs> mondays i hate mondays that sort of thing um and so i sort of briefly joke about garfield but you can go back to the bronze age to the mesopotamians the babylonians and they sort of had something like a seven day week a bit but they had a five day week as well it's quite confusing the ancient jews um about 2800 years ago probably had a seven day week they didn't name their days they numbered them one through seven the romans had an eight day week which they um described the a through h day a day b day c um it's the sort of greco-persian world about two and a half thousand years ago that gives us days of the week named after planets and planets of course named after gods so that's sort of about two and a half thousand years ago roughly there but there's a lovely essay that we don't have the essay of it's lost but we have the title of the essay by a roman writer called plutarch two thousand years ago and the essay title sounds like something you'd google at 2 a.m when you're drunk and the title is basically how come the planet how come the days of the week are named in the wrong order compared to how the planets are ordered in the sky what's that about um and um that's my translation of the latin and um 
And he sort of pointed out and went, hang on a minute, why is it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Which, of course, he didn't say, because that's how we name them, but he's a Roman. Uh, why is it um, Moon's Day, Mars's Day, Mercury's Day, uh, Jupiter's Day, Venus's Day, Saturn's Day, when actually the planets are in a different order? And it should be Saturn's <laughs> Day, uh, Jupiter's Day, Mars's Day, Sun's day, Venus's yeah. day, basically everything back to front. Um, and the long and the short of it is that the ancients uh, invented a 24-hour day. This is a Bronze Age technology. 24 hours in a day, you split the day in half, 12 hours in each half, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night. That meant that an hour had to stretch. So an hour could be 75 minutes or 45 minutes, depending on the month of the year, because yeah. there's more yeah. daylight in summer. So if you're having, if you've got 12 hours of daylight, but there's 14 hours of daylight by our measurement, your hour needs to be longer. It's very <laughs> bewildering for us. Um, and then you've got to fit in 168 hours into a week. And what they did was they named each hour after a god. And they only had seven gods. Seven gods into 25 doesn't work. So the first hour of day one is, you know, jupiter whatever and then 25th hour is a different god because seven doesn't go into 25 so basically you end up with a different order to what actually the order is astronomically of how yeah. far away planets are from us so this essay by plutarch <laughs> is sort of going, hang on what's going on here and it's um and it's all to do with the mathematics so basically we still in 2022 still use babylonian mathematics yeah. in our daily life we use it you know, 60 minutes in an hour 12 months in a year that's babylonian bronze age maths um and so it's all sort of a bit a bit sort of bonkers and then obviously yeah monday is named after the moon in the you know germanic early medieval language uh tuesday is named after chu god of war wednesday is woden's day <laughs> thursday is thor's day which we should bring back i love it uh friday is freya's day saturday saturn's day so weirdly there's a roman god still lurking in this list it's like he's just like hello i'm sorry i'm a roman uh, and then sunday and then the other part of that question is mondays when were they the first day of the week well they used to be the third day of the week um, Saturday was the first day of the week in, in the Jewish calendar and the Sabbath. Uh, then Christians turned it to the Sunday. That was the, that was the sort of the day of rest for God when he created the world. And then about a hundred years ago, you get the invention of the weekend. And that is obviously to do with the industrial revolution and the kind of rhythms of working hours and the fact that men and women working in factories would be given maybe half a day off on a Saturday and then Sunday would be the day of rest. And then they go back to work on a Monday. So the modern Monday is about a hundred years old, but Monday's, <laughs> as we think of them, could also be two and a half thousand years old or even older. We just don't know. So sorry, just say you don't know, Greg. Sorry. Just say, don't give all that stuff. Just it should sorry, be. Sorry, yeah, know. sorry. That would have been... I don't, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. A much I don't know. If I'd said, I don't know. And my daughter would still say, yeah, but when was the first one and who invented it? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Monday invented it. Um, but there's, you know, there's a great... There's, again, early on, there's a great... Uh, uh, a great thing about when was the first joke book, which is a comedian's uh, very interesting. You've got some. Um, do you, did you have a mm. favourite uh, joke from the from the olden days? I've got. I've picked out one if, uh, if you haven't got one. Yeah. I, well, I like. Yeah, well, go on. Yeah, give got, us, which one did you the, like the, best? There are a few, as you say, that are, that feel quite modern, and mm. you've obviously put them in a slightly modern vernacular. Um, an idiot sees a friend and exclaims, "I heard you were dead." His buddy replies, "And yet you can see I'm alive." The idiot answers, yeah, but the guy who told me is more trustworthy than you. That was my favourite one. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like that joke. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, this is from a um, this is from the oldest joke book in existence. So someone asked me how old is the oldest joke book, and that's quite a specific question because no. it's not the oldest joke. Uh, oldest joke is from the Bronze Age, and it's a fart gag, obviously. Um, so it's from ancient Sumer. It's about three thousand nine hundred years old, and the joke is: What's something that's uh, never happened since time immemorial? A wife not <laughs> farting in her husband's lap. So it's a it's a joke about women farting in in men's laps, which is funny. Um, but oldest joke book is about it's about 1600 years ago and it's called the philo kelos uh, philo kelos means uh, the laughter lover philo lover um kelos smile or laugh and um it was written by two sort of greco-roman chaps who um did basically sod all else that's that's their only achievement in life fair play to them um and it's a kind of compilation of like witty funny gags and, and riddles um, with lots of stock characters, lots of stereotypes. So, you you know, you said an idiot says, so there's loads of idiot jokes. There's lots of sort of jokes about like tight-fisted landlords and, and sort of, you know, sexually aggressive women and um, foreigners being thick. It's a sort of, it's kind of like a 1970s joke, but with quite sort of racist stereotype gags about like the Belgians or whatever. Um, and yeah, some of the gags are quite good. Like I've told them in pubs and people sort of chuckle. And um uh, and so that's the oldest joke book in existence. Um, we know there was an older one written for the Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, but we don't have it. Um, but he had heard there was a sort of comedy club in Athens um, called the, um, there's a place called Kino Sages. And he had heard that that's where all the sort of this gang of 60 philosophers would gather and yeah. drink and tell jokes. And he was like, they said, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to hear. So he sent them some gold and some silver and said, can you send me a copy of your best best one-liners? So we don't have that book, sadly, but that was pro- possibly right. the first mail order. Well, it's amazing for a joke to last even ten, you know, a, a joke from 10 years ago doesn't necessarily work today. Uh, as many people are <laughs> finding true. out yeah, on Twitter. For so it. for one to be 1,600 years old and still be, get a laugh, you'd be very pleased, the person who wrote that, if they thought, you know, those people will still be mildly chuckling at this. If, if anything of mine was still being chuckled <laughs> at in 10 years, I might be quite pleased with that. So 1,600 years is pretty good. But that you also talk about in the book about do you th- about lost texts. And do you, do you think there's... Yeah. You think there's hope? I mean, I suppose there is hope that these things might turn up. There's someone in Herculaneum or somewhere like that, or or in caves in they the do, desert. Somewhere. Yeah, they do. They do. That's right. I mean, so um, someone asked me, you know, which books from history have been lost, and actually, mm. it's a huge number of books. We have an incredibly small number of the books that we know existed, and then there's a whole number of books that we don't even know existed, obviously, which have been lost to us. So we we are missing. Um, easily a hundred ancient Greek plays, easily by some of the great, you know, Sophocles, um, Euripides, Aristophanes. We're missing loads of those. We're missing tons of philosophical texts by the kind of big, big philosophers of the ancient world. We're also missing at least sort of half of the books published in the 1500s. Yeah. Um, and and then you've got the unfinished books. You know, Charles Dickens's uh, unfinished novel. Uh, Mr. of Edwin Drood. We've got an unfinished um, Austin novel. You know, there's loads and loads of books that we know are missing. And then you've got the kind of Donald Rumsfeld line. Do you remember that line he said? There are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. And everyone ripped the piss out of him because he was an absolute bastard. But it was the <laughs> smartest thing he ever said. It's incredibly, it was really, it wasn't his line. It was borrowed from a CIA analyst, I think. But it's a really perceptive line. As a historian, there's things we know. And then there are things we know we don't know. 
absolutely. You know, we we know for certain that someone must have invented <laughs> yes. carpets, Ian Carpet, but we don't know we don't know his full name. Yeah, so we call him Ian Carpet. Um, and then there are things we don't know. We don't know. So there's a huge amount of stuff that just wasn't recorded, and we don't even think to to look for it, or we don't even know where to start. So, in terms of lost texts, we do occasionally. Yeah, historians do occasionally stumble on amazing things in attics and in archives and in yeah. uh, jumble sales or whatever. Um, and quite recently, and I wrote about it in the book, they found this catalogue from the 1500s written by Christopher Columbus's son. And it was a catalogue of books that were available at the time. And loads of those books are new to us. And it's like, oh, wow, cool. So there's now a list of new books we can go hunting for we might, might find. So... It's that sort of thing of if you know what to look for, occasionally you might stumble on a thing that then opens up a whole new world of other yeah. things to go and look for. So yeah. it's quite exciting. But yeah, of course, there's a yeah. huge amount of stuff that's lost. Um, let's just talk. We'll, we'll, we'll probably come back to some of the cocks and poo because, you know, that's very interesting to me. But we should, <laughs> um, you know, you're obviously, you've done, you've, what is this, your third or fourth book? Or is there more than that? I mean, it depends what you count to as book third. This is my third third book yeah. and my children so you, you've got the yeah. point as a writer for any writers listening where you if you have an idea you take it to the publisher and are they likely to publish it or is it is it still a struggle to get the next one done or are they going what have you got for me greg and get it on my desk i want to publish <laughs> another one for you yeah that's a that's a good question so in terms of my career obviously i think i'm a little different maybe to other people in that i think it's quite conventional perhaps to establish yourself as a writer and then once you're a writer to perhaps fan off and do other things and I'm the other way right so I started really in television Horrible Histories was my sort of springboard to being vaguely known by people and then I got a book deal off the back of that so I sort of began in somewhere else which meant that for me publishing has always been um, an opportunity I was able to kind of come into because I had a slight little bit of a reputation for being a historian who uses humour and so, yeah, my first book was actually part of a two book deal. And so the first book was called um, A Million Years in a Day. And it's a history of daily life since the Stone Age, from Stone Age to the Phone Age is the subtitle. And it's like all the things you do on a modern Saturday. So you wake up in bed, it's the history of beds, etc. all the stuff you do in the day and, and where do they come from? Um, and that's kind of the idea for my children's book, too. A children's book is exactly the same idea, really. But it's 50 objects a child might use on a school day. Um, and so my second book, Dead Famous, had to be part of that same deal. So it was, you know, I basically had to come up with an idea and I pitched maybe six ideas. Um, and that one was the history of celebrity. That right. one came to me quite late, actually. I had, I'd sort of pitched four or five and my publisher was like, yeah, I mean, these could work. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. And then I sort of suddenly went, hang on a minute, actually. I think I think the history of celebrity is really important and interesting and much older than people think. Everyone thinks celebrities invented in like 1910 and it's not. It's easily findable in the 1700s, if not older. Um, and that was one where they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, do that. And I remember sending an email going, I think this is quite straightforward and I can probably do this quite quickly. Um, and four years later, it was sort of like, oh, my God, kill me now. It's this appallingly enormous project that took me so much longer because it was so vast. Um, I ended up with 1.4 million words of notes. And um, and so, you know, in terms of you know, in terms of what's, what it's like to be a writer, I don't know if you find the same, Richard, but... Um, I'd signed a book deal in 2013 
for two book deal and it had been quite a lot of money actually it had been you know it had been a life-changing amount of money i'd been able to get a, right. i got a mortgage off it i you know was able to buy a house having been really precarious in my 20s not earning enough to ever do that and I was like, oh, cool, good. I've made it into sort of middle-class comfort. I can buy a house and be a normal person, whatever. But because <laughs> the second book took so long, I yeah. went unpaid for two years. And in 2017, my tax return for that right. year was £10,000. was my annual income, which, um, you know, you'd earn more working in Argos, you know, which, you know, is a hard job. And people working in Argos work very hard and good for them. But I was trying to... I, I thought I was sort of earning enough money to support myself and my, my wife and we were trying to have a child and suddenly for two years I was really, yeah. really up against it financially and having to write this book full time basically that I had been contracted for four years earlier, five years earlier. So um, it's quite easy as a writer to say yes to a two book deal and then to sort of yeah. find yourself sort of contracted to write a thing and they're not going to be able to pay you until you finish it which um, is pretty tough if it's a four-year project that's um, yeah. a lot harder than you thought and you're a stupid idiot for saying yes. So that was a, for me, that was an interesting moment. And then, yeah, my um, Ask a Historian, my editor, Maddie, came in and said, we'd love you to do another book. Have you got any ideas? And I, I didn't really have another great idea. And she said, you know, what, what about if it was something quite straightforward in terms of just yeah. doing what you do in your live shows of people asking you questions and we just do it as a book? And I was like, oh, yeah that, oh, yeah, that could work. And then, but I said to her, I'm very tired. I've just spent four years on this huge thing. I'm very busy. I've got a six-month-old baby. I definitely don't want to do this book until 2024. And she said, okay. So we signed this contract and it's like, he won't, he won't touch it until 2024. I was very, very strongly uh, against it. And then the pandemic happened. And I phoned her up a week later and went, Maddie, can I do the book now? Because uh, I have no money and everything's a disaster. And also, you know, it was... Um, my friend Henry also lost his job and he helps me with horrible history. He's a brilliant historian and he lost his job. And I was like, oh, well, if I can give him some cash to help me research this book, the two of us researching it together, yeah. that makes my job easier as well, makes his life easier and we can support each other and I can get this book done now rather than 2024. So it sort of made sense. But uh, a week after having done that deal, I then found myself making three separate podcasts simultaneously and two <laughs> books simultaneously. So I went from having not enough work in about March 10th to by March 25th, I had right. seven projects all happening at the same time. It was like, oh no, oh God, oh fuck. So, um, I mean, writing books is difficult. Year. I mean, so, I've written yeah. all sorts of things and it's the, it's the hardest thing to do. And it's, it is so unpredictable because you just don't know. You can't say, I'm dead. You know, you often have to say, I'll get it in by such and such. Very rarely do you get it in by such and such. And I'm, th I'm sure that's factored in by oh, our yeah. clever publishers. But um, yeah. Yeah, they know. They've met right before. <laughs> but, they know what But it's, you know, there is no guarantee that, you know, especially with something like that, the way you, you have to research it and think of it and, and, and come up with there's no guarantee whether it'll be quick or slow so it is it's it's a it's a precarious and i think you know it's it's talking to writers you kind of realize how few writers are you know selling hundreds of thousands of copies or tens of thousands of copies even you know so yeah. the ones who are selling a million copies are, are very rare and, and obviously a, a sort of bankrolling the rest of us presumably uh but uh but you know it's difficult to yeah, work I... out from the publisher's point of view what what risks they're prepared to take because obviously if you're writing a book that takes four years they have to pay you a, a, a certain amount of money for that but will it will you will it make its money yeah. back you know that's 
absolutely but i think i mean the economics of publishing are really complicated and interesting and they're quite difficult to understand from outside and you have to spend a bit of time in the industry to even understand some of the basics mm. sort of how it all works um and people always really misunderstand sort of the the, the um advance issue like i remember when um oh actually who was it it was uh kate middleton's Pippa. sister pippa middleton signed a book pippa signed a book for a deal to write a book about throwing parties i think and uh, the advance was I don't yeah. know, half a million pounds or something yeah. and everyone was like oh my god they've given her a check for half a million pounds it's like no <laughs> that's not how it works the, the it gets split into four separate payments um the first payment upon you know when you sign the deal the second payment when you finish the book third payment when it comes out in hardback fourth payment when it comes out in paperback which is basically about five years yeah i mean that in most cases so it's that's yeah. it's still a huge amount of money but it's split across four or five years um and that's how i got caught out with my initial deal <laughs> i thought i'm rich i'm rich i buy a house and then you know some you know whatever seven years later yeah i mean that was yeah 2013 i signed the deal seven years later yeah. book two came out and it came out four days before a pandemic which you know obviously meant it didn't sell as well as i'd hoped so um it's it's kind of fascinating and also talking to people what they don't really understand what a bestseller sells like you know if you sell 3000 copies in a week you are one of the best selling books in the country and that's mm. not a huge number of books to sell in a week it doesn't sound a huge amount does it if you think about what we in our head think of as, as a bestseller so the the number of books that are out there enormous number of books don't sell yeah. anything like that in a week which i guess is quite surprising and at the same time yeah you don't get your richard osmond's um very often at all i mean his book is a global sensation and an in incredible achievement and you know one of the fastest selling books of all time um and <laughs> annoyingly he's very nice so you can't even be mean about it um he's a very talented very nice man so he's very funny and talented you're like oh bastard all right fine uh, no he's brilliant but um i think by and large i do not know many historians who have ever had a best-selling book or if they have they've they've been quite lucky to have a best-selling book um i've never had a bestseller um i think my audiobook briefly went to number one on audible because they reduced <laughs> it to 99p and i sort of <laughs> tweeted the shit out of it going please just buy my book for a pound because frankly and you know and you can sort of yeah. game the system for a bit and, and they can they can you know throw it up the charts and actually at the moment dead famous this this celebrity book is 99p on kindle or for all of April. So if people want to check it it's out, definitely it's, it's that, quid, but it's, de it's definitely worth that, Greg. I've read it. It's definitely worth it. If you, if you don't like it, I'll give um, you but, uh, whatever pence you think it was. If you think it was worth 91 pence, I'll give you eight pence back. That's what I'll say to the the readers of that. <laughs> if you want to take the chance. But um, but yeah, in terms of my, my three books, um, my best-selling book actually is my first book, A Million Years in a Day, because it got translated right, yeah. into lots of different yeah. foreign languages, which is very nice. Um, and, and, you know, there was a moment where I'd sold more copies of that book worldwide than could fit into my favorite wow, football okay. team stadium. And that's when I was like, <laughs> oh, cool. Wow. That's, that's, that feels like success. And it was not a huge hit, you know, it wasn't a bestseller, but like cumulatively yeah, yeah. across all the territories, it just sort of, it did weirdly well in Taiwan, which no <laughs> one expected. So, um, and it did all right in America. So it, um, that was for me like a kind of like a, oh wow that's incredible but book two didn't do nearly as well and is it did fine but didn't do nearly as well book three is sort of slowly ticking along and is fine but no one's getting rich off of me but they are hopefully <laughs> not losing money off of me you know they pay me money to write books i write the book on time roughly 
they publish it and then they do the same yeah. another 500 times and i guess that's the yeah that's it's the interesting i mean and obviously you and i are in a very lucky position where we can we can get books published Usually, yeah. there's lots of writers out there trying to write things or have ideas i mean that's the the, the most frustrating thing yep. is to write a book and then be trying to pitch that book which i know a lot of people do um usually for me it's the yep. you know I'll have an idea and someone will say, yeah, we'll go for it. Here's some money, go make it. But it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think again, that's the, that's the thing. I think that people maybe don't realize looking at writers that absolutely most of them, nearly all of them. Yeah. And even I was talking to Armando, you know, about his book and he's going, I don't know how the publishers justify, but you think if Armando <laughs> thinks he's not selling enough copies of the book to justify being paid to write the book, then uh, something's going wrong in the world. But you know, it's difficult to sell books and then, and then just suddenly something will take off. So it's, you know, it's a kind of exciting process. And I think it's, You've got to enjoy the process. For, as a writer, I think you've got to enjoy it for what it is. It's hard to enjoy writing a book because it's difficult. It's very hard to enjoy to write a history book on spec because, as you say, you know, like four years of your life is taken yeah. up. And I think if you enjoy writing, that's got to be the first call. Yeah, I I really enjoy writing. I really enjoy the creative process. I find it quite lonely. And that's why I love Twitter so much, because it's a way of sort of getting out yeah. some of your crazy thoughts and sort of just chatting to people and going, hey, how are you? Because actually uh, sitting alone for four years <laughs> writing um, uh, Dead Famous was sort of, I, I sort of slightly lost my mind a bit. Um, but what's interesting, actually, you know, I know quite a lot of writers who are now very successful, but got successful yeah. on book number six or seven, you know, and they were jobbing writers who were, who were fine. They were ticking over OK, but they weren't doing big numbers or anything like that but then they had a hit book and what that means is your back catalogue suddenly yeah. comes alive it gets a second life and it's a bit different to comedy i guess because stand-up comedy i mean you do you film your shows so maybe and you're selling dvds and, and maybe that's the thing but quite a lot of what i understand stand-up comedy to be is that it's quite mm -hmm. it's quite ephemeral it's quite sort of um fleeting it's this beautiful thing where you write a show you tour it you get it right it's really funny and then it yeah. it, it vanishes forever you know it, you, it, you and i know you brought back all your shows and did them as a sort of a, a deranged <laughs> uh sort of midlife crisis which is an amazing achievement and, and very impressive but that is quite uncommon you know most shows vanish yeah. and are not recoverable but books that are published yeah they can live forever right you can find them in charity shops but they you can find them and a lot of writers i think have found their back catalogs then get discovered by new fans who've come to book number seven and that's that's lovely so for anyone listening who maybe is writing and maybe has got a couple of books away but they didn't quite go anywhere it doesn't mean it's over it could well be that you know, yeah, you'll, you'll just be dead. You'll just be dead when it's in the future. It'll be, it'll be a thousand years time. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, if you can if you can put your book somewhere where it will survive for a thousand years time, and just hope for some awful, terrible thing to wipe out most of civilization, it could be the most important book of of all humanity. It could be the only surviving book. It could. It could, it could be your toilet book of where I did. A, <laughs> here's some poos I've done. It could be the only it could be book, the book. And that's it could the, be the only, and book. that's what we've all got to dream of, and that's why I've buried all my books in the garden. Let's quickly. <laughs> Have you read book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you read book? Yeah, I read book. Let's yeah, quickly talk about yeah. the. I mean, the, the audio book again, quite maybe unusually for an historian, not entirely unusually, but you you read it yourself, but uh, which is great because I think it, gets, yeah. it gives. You pronounce Geng How do you pronounce Genghis Khan? Because I've got to say that Genghis Khan. I've got to Genghis say that Khan. in my book because Genghis Khan comes up on mine uh, and you know yeah, and yeah. i wish you'd asked um 
is it true that Hitler only had one ball in your book? Because that I could just have copied that out. I had to research that for myself. So it's a shame you weren't right about Hitler. Um, did you feel like it was important to, you know, you've got this extra sort of nearly an hour long, basically a podcast, I guess, with uh, Dan Schreiber and uh, Nina Ramirez, who's been a recent guest on Rahul and Shappi Chaparat Kasandi. Um, uh, so was that, yep. did you think I want to give extra value to the audio books or just... Yeah, it's um, absolutely. You know, I love audiobook and I love audio. And obviously, as a podcaster, I, I love it. So I've been very blessed and very extremely privileged that um, I've been allowed to narrate all three of my books, which was a, a very reckless decision on the publisher's part for the first one because I did. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I literally had never done an audiobook in my life. I'd never even made a radio show, and they were like, "Right, sit there, read that." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." Um, but yeah, on, on Ask a Historian, we were thinking, well, what could we do to make the, the audiobook a bit more fun, but also to sort of, you know, lean yeah. into the fact I'm a podcaster, to have a bit more kind of spontaneity in it. So I try and narrate the book with a bit of sense of humor and a bit of, you know, try and make it fun, whatever. But then actually it was having that kind of roundtable, open-ended, funny conversation with, with Dan from, you know, No Such Thing as a Fish and, and uh, Shappy, who's an amazing comedian, and obviously Nina, who's a brilliant historian, art historian. All three of them very funny, but all three all three love history, right? They all really, really, really care. So it's a sort of funny, quite interesting round table for an hour of just us, um, sort of answering, you know, yeah. uh, hypothetical questions about, you know, what would you bring back from the past, or which which year in history would you like to live in, and all those sort of quite straightforward questions. But actually, when you speak to someone who's knowledgeable and passionate, actually, it it, it quite quickly gets fun and bubbly because um, they've got knowledge, they've got opinions and they can kind of go oh well actually 1969 <laughs> yeah. is the year and you go all right fair enough so yeah it's um yeah. it's a bit of bonus content and i mean there's loads of great stuff we could talk about it all day and we're not going to but uh, i'm glad to see that you you feel similarly <laughs> to me about what if questions and you know but i think like less oh, you're yeah. less I, I tried to talk to this about to uh robin Ince about uh infinite universes because I think there could be infinite universes and they're all completely <laughs> different. I don't think having infinite, because there's so much variety. And just in, our, in this conversation we're having, there's an, an infinite number of things I can say to you right now. I could say, you know, some of them mm -hmm. would be nonsense and some of them, but the, some of them would be very long. But uh, I, I don't think everything that happens has to happen. But within the what if of history, you know, people, I mean, even you a little bit, you say, would Elvis Presley have done this if this had happened? If there wasn't World War One, if Archduke mm. Ferdinand hadn't been shot, for example, none of us would be alive, right? Because everything would have changed. You know, people have to, your parents have to have sex at the exact right moment and the exact right sperm has to get through to be you. Yeah. So the minute you change one, even tiny thing, but a big thing like that, that's the whole of the cast of future history is is changed. So, you know, it, it is pointless to debate <laughs> what would, I mean, it's pointless. Even in the short term, it's pointless because we don't, you know, would there have been World War One anyway? Would something else have made it happen? Uh, but the minute you change one thing, everything is, it ripples out and everything changes completely. Yeah, I mean, I so in the book, someone asked me, you know, what's your favourite what if from history, and I sort of <laughs> a long old rant and, uh, and and sort of said, look, what if, what if history is is um, you know, it's a fun question to ask in the pub, yeah. but it's really unhelpful because uh, history is about chaos and it's contingent upon these tiny little domino effects that are happening billions of times. And we can't, you have to be very careful to escape from this notion that history was inevitable, that the past was inevitable, the, the course of events as we know them had to be destined to happen that way. And it's a very interesting sort of trope in science fiction films. And I know you love time loop movies and time travel films, and I know you, you really enjoy that. Um, 
as a historian, you know, I get asked this stuff a lot. And what would have happened if Henry VIII had, you know, fallen off his horse in 1520 and died? And the truth is, we just don't know. And the moment you try and guess, you're wrong. You, you know, you could by all means have a guess, but you have to put a flashing light over the top saying this is absolutely not true because yeah. it, there's just no way of knowing. Absolutely every tiny thing adds up to enormous things. And yeah, the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand obviously, you know, brings about the... the the horrors and the traumas and the catastrophe of the First World War. But it also brings about all sorts of enormously important minor tweak changes in things like jazz music and the history of plastic surgery and fuel prices and the development of the rubber industry in Malaysia. And when your grandparents had sex with each other, if they had sex with each other, and so whether you would exist at all, which you wouldn't. (laughs) Even if they did have sex, it still wouldn't be your your mum or dad. Sure. <laughs> yes, Franz Ferdinand is responsible for the but sperm that becomes We needed every you. terrible um, thing. But... We needed Hitler to exist. We needed all these terrible things to have happened. You know, if, if, for for everything that's you know, we we have to say that if, without that, the being that is Richard Herring yeah. would 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 not be here. <laughs> Maybe someone a little bit like me would no, be here. Maybe be, someone the... very unlike me would be here. Exactly. There would be a Stephen Herring, and he would be such a douchebag. But um, but you're lovely. Um, I think the uh, yeah. I mean, as I say very quickly, what I say in the book is actually is that the way in which um, what if history is written is often written with the same elegance and narrative sort of consistency of science fiction where these extreme extremely chaotic things are ordered so beautifully into this sort of inevitable thing and that's just not what history is history is chaos which means what if history should also be chaos and it never is it's always like (laughs) well of course if this had happened then this would have happened and there go this gentleman here it's like no 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 no. if that had happened everything changes stop there that's that's where you have to stop so i I, sometimes i get yelled at by historians for not playing this game i also just just think think it's the things the big things that are the what ifs uh, they're sort of so, you know, the sinking of the white ship is so amazing and so gener- changing for a generation. Yeah. That's enough. You don't have to think what would have happened if it hadn't happened. You think, look, this is what happened because this crazy thing happened and a, and a generation yeah. of nobles are wiped out and we get a different king than we would have had. That's all that matters. You know, you know it's, yeah. it is the sliding doors thing of, you know, everything is sliding doors. You just, you just <laughs> don't get shown both options. You just go, wow. You know, that was, yeah, that's true. That was crazy. Every that thing happened. Yes. A billion <laughs> sliding doors. Gwyneth Paltrow smashing her face into a billion sliding doors yeah. over and over and over. It's right. the, the but metaphor. Anyway, should, uh, but look, there's so much, I mean, I, my, there's so much great stuff in there. I was, I was very interested in, and we won't talk about it all now, but there's, Great stuff about horses' penises on. Well, all I didn't know there were so many penises on the Bayo tapestry. Uh, I, 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 it's amazing most of them horses, but still crazy. I didn't know that someone had thought about. I think I've got this right. Reanimating George Washington with lamb's blood. That was that was that was that. Yep. I didn't know that fact. Yeah, that was an incredible you, yeah. fact to come out of this. Um, and I like you know. And there's speculative things about. Uh, there's a lovely chapter about where how much of the Flintstones turns out to have any basis in history, which is you know, yeah. which is, but it, it, those are just fun. And the, and the Ocean's Eleven kind of a, through history is a sort of speculative bit of fun at, at which you can have fun with yourself as well. So there is you know, and choose yeah. choose your yeah. own Ocean's yeah, exactly. Eleven from history. Yeah, someone someone asked me if I had to put together a, a gang of people yeah. to to pull a casino heist, but the people had to be from history. Who would I put together in my Ocean's Eleven gang? And it's like, oh, great, okay. So you're looking for a sort of brainy person and a, a decoy and a spy and a sort of you know the muscle. And then yeah, the Flintstones one. Um, so that one actually a couple of times in the book, I, I consulted experts to make sure that I was getting it right. And so I sat down with Dr. Becky Rag Sykes, who's written a brilliant book about um, Neanderthals. It won a 
prize and it's a fantastic book it's called kindred it's so good um and we watched a couple of flintstones episodes together on youtube and she was sort of going yeah that's accurate that's accurate that's a dinosaur that's not accurate that's accurate and it was kind of really interesting because the the flintstones was not in any way trying to be accurate but they accidentally occasionally got it right which is quite funny so um and as you're saying life um monty python the holy grail sort of although it's silly it has so much kind of scholarship behind it so much so many, so many clever I, academics behind it yeah, yeah. terry jones was obviously obsessed with that era so uh so there's you know Loved there's, there's yeah. lots of historians jokes um, in there but there's a there's there's a rich history in there as well but look we've i've taken up enough of your time because we were talking for half an hour waiting for bloody chris evans to turn up from picking up his kids thanks to chris evans by the way for helping us put this together um but uh, <laughs> the book is called ask a, a historian ask a Ask a historian. Ask a historian. Uh, and, uh, Ask a the audio book is fantastic yeah. as well. If you prefer your to get audio books, you could get both. It's you can dip in and just enjoy a chapter or a question, and you, or you can read it from start to finish. Uh, lots of brilliant stuff in there. I'll ask you a question that isn't in the book that my four-year-old son asked me at six thirty in the morning. See if you can answer this. Mm-hmm. Do ghosts have bum holes? that's a brilliant question that's such a good question but that i mean that yeah that you have to ask robin into that he'd know a lot more than me but i i love those sorts of questions because those are conceptual questions about what is the afterlife and does it um represent the corporeal life and just very quickly if we look at ancient china and ancient egypt for example if you look at their conceptions of the afterlife if you look at the tomb of um emperor ching shi huangdi the the first emperor of china uh and if you look at the tomb of tutankhamun they were when Tutankhamun was buried with 145 spare pairs of underpants, <laughs> which suggests in the afterlife yeah, you have a bum hole. So I'm okay. saying, I'm right. saying, yes. That's a very I'm good. I'll yes, give that answer. Holes. Um, you don't see many bum holes on ghosts. I think there'll be some. This is probably pre <laughs> preempting something I'm going to say in the relevant that's going to get after this one. But you, there's no ghosts with like poo hanging out their bums, which there would be. If someone's died like with in the middle of a poo, you presume it's like a photocopy of you at your death. There should be some people walking several, out with just a several people keep, yeah. coming out. Dying is, on the loo is, is quite common, as we know. You know King, the King George of England yeah. died. Elvis died because it puts quite a lot of pressure on the heart, apparently, when you're straining. <laughs> so it's quite common. And so, yes, there should well Good. be ghosts with, with sort of turtlenecking poos just sort of poking out the back end. It's too ashamed to come out, probably. Fair enough. Uh, well, there's lots of good poop stuff and lots of good uh, penis stuff and sex stuff in this book and swearing stuff, a little bit of swearing stuff that's fun. Uh, but it's a great book. And yeah, I think anyone, I think anyone basically 12 and up, I think is, it's uh, it's okay for. I'd like to show, sure. well, my daughter's a bit older. It's exactly the kind of book my uh, my daughter will like when she's a little bit older. Um, uh, and uh, and so, yeah, brilliant questions. I hope you do some more. I'm very much looking forward to your actual kids book and whatever you come up with next. Thank you very much. Greg Jenner, Ask a Historian. <laughs>